Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Animales humanos, animales humanos, animales, animales, animales humanos, animales humanos, animales, Good afternoon and welcome to Freedom of Species. Freedom of Species brings animal advocacy to the airways. It's a radio program dedicated to raising awareness about issues concerning animals. This includes advocacy, activism, protection, conservation and, importantly, appreciation. I'll be your host today. My name is Roy Taylor. We have some talks from last year's Animal Activists Forum. With this year's Animal Activist Forum coming up in Melbourne in 2015, I thought this would be a good reminder to uh, go online and get tickets for this year's forum at activistsforum.com. Back to the show, we're being broadcast right now from the 3CR studios in Melbourne, Australia, streamed live via the 3CR website. Recent podcasts are also available via the 3CR and Freedom of Species website. And all podcasts are available via iTunes. So on today's show... It's three talks from last year's Animal Activist Forum, which was on in October at the Portside Conference Centre in Sydney. The first is from Bede Carmody, a long-standing animal advocate that does a lot of work for farmed animals. And I believe that Bede runs a poultry place, Animal Sanctuary. Following that, we'll have a talk by Greens Federal Senator Lee Rhiannon, And finally, a great talk by Daniel Beecher and David Ristrom, well-known legal advocates, a lawyer and a barrister based in Melbourne, who do a lot of work for social justice movements. So we're going to go to the first talk now, which is by Bede Carmody. I'm going to talk to you about sustainable activism, how to avoid burnout. Just a bit of background about me. I've been involved with animal rights since I stopped eating animals back on the 1st of January 19, oh, yeah, 1994. So it's uh, 21 years. I made that decision when I was still living up here in Sydney. In 1999, I had the opportunity to move out of Sydney to a little town outside of Canberra called Murrum Bateman, where two friends had an animal sanctuary. And... Um, I was supposedly going to stay there for a year and help them out while one of them worked overseas. Fifteen years later, I'm still living there and I actually now have my own sanctuary down there called A Poultry Place, which I started back in January 2001. Um, Since uh, July 2003, I've been working, uh, because I have to work full-time as well, um, I've been working with Amnesty International as the community organiser for um, ACT in Southern New South Wales. Um, so my 
day job uh, involves lots of work with activists um, as well as myself being an activist. And uh, it's through that kind of development that I've really got a um, strong desire to make sure everyone understands this idea about sustainable activism. Uh, the reason being is that in February 2007, I quit my job because I was burnt out. Luckily, I had the opportunity to return to it in March 2008 after a 54-week break, um, and I've been in the job ever since. So um, th the way I was able to do that was I learned a couple of lessons about how to manage my um, activism in a sustainable way so it doesn't consume my life. Um, given my paid job and my non paid work basically means I'm an activist 24-7. To me it's really important that I get some life balance. Um, the way I did that was I discovered these two fabulous books um, which I strongly recommend to everyone. Um, I'm go I've got some handouts that I will give you at the end of this that have got references for these two books so don't panic about writing stuff down. Uh, Lifelong Activist is actually a website now so you can actually um, do the whole book through a website. When I got it, it wasn't a website. <laughs> um, but the whole book is now an entire website. Um, Aftershock is, um, I, I think, it should be compulsory reading for anyone who calls themselves an activist, regardless of what field you're involved in. Um, it's a book that I probably flick through at least twice a year. Um, it's really fantastic. The thing I like about both these books is uh, the two women who wrote them are both qualified professionals um, in psychology. They're also... Uh, qualified activists and have both got experience in a number of fields including animal rights. So it's written by a perspective that you'll also feel comfortable with, uh, whereas some books you can read and they're written by people who probably don't have the same life view as you and they can say things that might put you off reading their books. Um, just on um, that too, I want to stress I'm not a mental health professional at all. So anything I say today is based on my experience and my reading. Um, I strongly recommend that if anyone's really um, suffering issues uh, related to some of the stuff I'm talking about, you really seek out some professional help. Because um, believe me, it goes, it goes uh, a great way in helping us maintain our momentum in the movement. Um, one other thing I want to say before I really get into it is um, I use the word activist. And I just want to define what I mean by the term activist. An activist to me is anyone who takes part in a movement. Um, a lot of people think an activist are the people who kind of, you know, go out at night and do the, you know, the undercover investigations and stuff like that. To me, an activist is anyone who does anything as simple as wearing a T-shirt, uh, writing letters to the editor, um, you know, making a comment to someone in a supermarket, doing an information stall at a festival... Everyone's an activist, and um, I tell people who I work with, because I work with a lot of volunteers who are activists, you know, it doesn't matter how you feel about your activism, as long as you're contributing to the course, in my book that makes you an activist. So, why do we need sustainable activists? Well, the reason is, um, in a lot of our work, we are confronting um, huge corporations, governments, we need to try to um, make change. But we're usually up against very big um, opposition. So we need to try to maintain the momentum. And too often in social change movements, there's too few people who are willing to take up the fight. 
So what we need to do is try to maintain people as much as possible as we can in any movement. So what I'm going to talk about today is some of the ways we can overcome the problem of people joining a movement and then leaving it. Um, as I said at the start, I've been involved in uh, the animal rights movement for 21 years now. Um, I was at a, a forum, an activist uh, mental health forum earlier this year. Uh, in that room there was probably about 70 people. There was only one person in that room who had been involved in the movement longer than I had, and most of the other people who had, were involved, it's usually about five years or less. Uh, a couple of exceptions. but. Um, lots of people, and it's not just the animal rights movement, it's all movements. Uh, in my work uh, in the human rights field, we get lots of people who come into a movement, uh, they want to you know, make a change, but all too often, one reason or another, they fall out. Um, and it's usually a lot to do with frustration, because they're not, they're not achieving or they don't feel they're achieving enough. Uh, these are some of the impacts activism can have on us. Uh, not, it's not, and by no means is that an exhaustive list. That's just some of the things that um, I have been aware of that have affected me or affected people I know. Um, you're probably sitting there thinking, oh, sorry, can you see? Uh, you're probably thinking uh, there's other issues there that I haven't touched on. But what we need to start looking at is the impacts activism can have on us. And once we can identify them, we can then look at how we go about trying to um, address them and make it work for us in the long term. So what is burnout? The two authors I uh, mentioned before, Hilary Rettig and Patrice Jones, uh, these, this is a summary of what they think uh, burnout is. It's an act of involuntary leaving a movement. Um, and burnout, most importantly, is something you need to remember. It doesn't happen overnight. It's something that happens gradually. So by being able to recognise the signs that you might be feeling a bit burnt out and then addressing those issues in the long term will hopefully mean you'll hang around for a long, longer and you'll feel a lot happier about your activism uh, than if you crash and burn within six months. Um, my uh, experience working with uh, activists is you get a lot of people who do come in gung-ho and usually it's that first 12-month period um, is either they, they decide, OK, this is what I can do, or uh, they crash and burn, they leave almost immediately. Melanie Joy, you might know uh, of her work. Uh, she wrote a book called Carnism. Before she wrote that, she wrote this book called Strategic Actions for Animals. Um, and she talked about uh, the whole idea about uh, cultivating a sustainable life as an activist. Um, She's one of the many people uh, involved in the animal rights movement um, who have started to address this issue. And it's an issue um, when I started back in 1994, no one talked about. Um, thankfully, over the most recent five years or so, lots of people have started talking about it. Um, I don't know if anyone caught Mark Hawthorne this morning. He was apparently going to touch on burnout as well, and I'll talk about some of his work later on as well. Um, but um, burnout, and it's not just in the animal rights movement, it's in all social change movements. It's one of those kind of issues we don't want to talk about. Um, because we feel as activists, if we put our hand up saying, I'm feeling a bit burnt out, I'm feeling a bit tired, everyone else is going to judge us. 
Um, and it's one of those um, ideas that we have to overcome in order to uh, break through and get people to feel more comfortable about it because it is actually a, a natural process. Uh, in any movement, when you're trying to create social change, it is okay to feel exhausted sometimes. Um, and once we get that kind of momentum um, and, and discussion happening, people are going to feel more comfortable about it. One of the biggest problems in any social change movement is when people don't talk about their experiences. Uh, thankfully, the last two years here up in Sydney, Animal Lib has run an um, activist emotional uh, health forum each year, which allows us to discuss these kind of ideas and talk about solutions. And why do we need healthy activists? Talking about the idea that change is a gradual thing. It doesn't happen overnight. Um, I, when I first got involved, um, the one issue I was so passionate about was battery hens. That was the first thing, the first uh, animal rights issue that really struck a chord to me. I honestly thought, by now, you know, 21 years in, we would have got rid of battery cages in Australia. Unfortunately, we still have them. That disappoints me on some levels, but at the same time, you can actually see, at least now, people, most people, know what a battery cage is. And uh, whether you, you like it or not, you know, fewer, there's fewer battery cage systems operating in Australia. Um, you know, that's still, you know, not, not a means to an end, but, you know, change happens, and it, that's an illustration of how slow the change can happen. Um, I honestly thought when I saw the battery cage, it would be gone, you know, by the end of uh, the 1990s. Um, the other thing I also have to say is uh, the first time I saw a photo of a mule's sheep, I was thinking there's no way that's ever going to be shown on TV, but nowadays, you know, we've seen those images on TV. So, you know, that's, that's another way that change has happened as well. So at least people now know what a mule sheep is. Uh, about activism being like a marathon. Uh, uh, you, you have to be in it for the long term. Um, and this is also really important, I think, um, when you read through this quote, you talk about um, how uh, anger, despair and exhaustion can become toxic and affect those around you. Um, some of you may have been involved with groups or organisations where one person is overrun, uh, is exhausted, is burnt out, and um, rather than admitting their problems, it becomes everyone else's problem. And uh, it, I've seen it happen, it can destroy groups. Um, and so that's what we also need to be aware of, because when we talk about burnout, uh, we're not just talking about our own experiences, we're also talking about those around us. And as a movement of people who care, we should also care about those we work with. Um, and it's really good if we can recognise the signs of uh, burnout in other people and um, at least have an idea and maybe, you know, offer them some helpful suggestions about how they can manage things. But when you get into a situation where you've got a group and it becomes this kind of toxic situation where people are, you know, um, angry and frustrated all the time, that's when you're not going to achieve anything. And that's when everything becomes internal and you forget about the external enemies you're focusing about. Signs of burnout. Important to remember, it's not a mental health condition, but it can contribute to mental health. Someone like me who has had a history of depressive episodes in my adulthood, um, it's really important to actually recognise um, some of these signs. So you can actually just see the triggers um, and then you can modify your behaviour. Um, in most severe cases, burnout can lead to suicide. Um, 
and there are numerous people uh, in uh, the animal movement, in the environment movement, who have actually taken their own lives. Uh, just out of that frustration that the change isn't happening quick enough. Um, so this is why it's really important for us to actually be able to recognise some of the signs uh, and, and try to put in processes that will um, combat them. So physical signs, and there's a typo there. <laughs> Feeling tired, headaches, backaches, that feeling that you just feel sick all the time. Um, changes in appetite, changes in sleeping habits uh, are some of the obvious physical signs of being burnt out. Emotional signs, uh, that nagging feeling of self-doubt uh, and feeling defeated and the lack of motivation, lack of satisfaction. I, I'm sure if I went around the room, we can all probably nod our heads and feel some of this in whatever we've been involved with. That feeling of harassment and overwhelmness. In my work, I'm involved with lots of groups in lots of country towns. And so often in those country towns, there's so many people who think, oh, I'm the only person. And uh, part of my job is to make those connections, like kind of, no, you're actually not the only person. Uh, Katie, there's, you know, eight other people in town who share your thoughts, so let me put you in contact with them, so at least you don't feel alone. Um, and that makes a huge difference to a lot of people. And behavioural science. Uh, Withdrawal, isolation, um, increased use of drugs, alcohol and food, um, and being angry and irritable with others. Um, and the great one that we all do, the procrastination. Um, and just, just that whole kind of, you know, you, you know you've got something you need to do, but it's kind of, that can wait till tomorrow. How do we avoid this? I always tell people, um, and it goes back to my definition of what an activist is, to me, activism has to be something that's fun. And it has to be something you really want to do. It's great to feel angry and you want to change the world, but you have to feel comfortable in your own skin about what it is you're willing to do. Um, I always tell people that, you know, I don't want you to do something you're not comfortable with and you're not going to feel rewarded afterwards. Um, going back to what I said earlier, you know, some people are petrified of standing at an information store if they get approached by the public because they're scared that they won't know the answers. And I always tell um, the people I work with that, you know, if that's the case, you just be honest with people and you say, my name's Bob, I'm a volunteer, I don't have all the answers, but I'm more than happy to find out the answers for you if you leave your name and number or an email address and I will refer you to Bede and Bede can, he's employed and he can actually find out the answers and get back to you. Um, you know, it, it, it is that easy to dilute those kind of scary situations. And again, one, one thing that a lot of people don't realise is it's very rare that you're going to actually get someone confronting you. More likely than not, you're going to get people come up and approach you who are very sympathetic and are going to congratulate you on what you're doing. It's when you get that one person out of 20 or 30 who says something derogatory to you that's what, that's what we remember, because we remember the negatives and we don't focus on the positives enough. <clears throat> so, getting on to some tips about being an activist, a healthy activist, someone, who, someone who's going to be part of a movement, whatever movement that is, and you're going to be around for a while. Now, 
when we go through these, you might think of some others. And um, when I finish going through the presentation, I'm hoping we're going to have a bit of a discussion and share some other thoughts. Um, being reasonable about your time and efforts. Um, I always say to my work colleagues, we are dependent on volunteers. Volunteer activists who do their activism outside of their work, outside of their family commitments, outside of their own personal commitments. Because the last thing you want to do is have a group of people who give up everything that they enjoy to work on what you're asking them to work on because they're going to crash and burn pretty quick if they don't have any other outlet. Um, and you have to be aware of people's other commitments. You know, everyone's got, everyone's got family uh, of, of one sort or another. Everyone's got commitments, you know. Look at myself, you know. I have an animal sanctuary. Uh, you know, there's more than, yeah, well, there's hundreds of residents at a poultry place, and that's my, that's my priority. So that means that I have to make sure I'm home before it's dark to make sure everyone gets in safe and they're locked in at night so they're safe from predators. I have to be there in the morning, rain, hail or shine, to let them out and make sure they've got water. You know, that's my commitment. I've made that and, you know, I can stick to that. What I need to do is make sure other people understand that as well. When they kind of think, oh, you know, you're so antisocial, you never come out, which I get a lot, you know. Um, and it's kind of, well, you know, look, I can do things, but I just have to fit it into my schedule. Um, maintaining your health is a very big one for lots of activists. Um, and this goes back to the whole thing about um, changing sleep patterns and things like that. I know uh, the last couple of weeks, because I've had a lot of other commitments, um, my sleep patterns have gone array. And uh, what's today? Saturday. Uh, last, <laughs> last, last Saturday morning, I was up at 3.30 because I had things going through my mind and I could not get back to sleep. Um, and it was one of those things that's kind of, this is ridiculous, you know. Um, I'm thinking about, and you, you know that feeling you get, the more you think about something, the wider awake you are. You don't, you don't have any solutions, but that just keeps going. Um, <clears throat> the other important thing is it's okay to take time out. When I first joined Animal Live, I did everything. Yeah, I was living here in Sydney. Every, every rally we had, every campaign we were involved with, I was involved with everything. And I got exhausted. I could not be an expert on everything. So I basically decided, you know what? <clears throat> I can't do everything. So I started focusing on the one thing that really got me involved with the animal rights movement, and that was the use of non-humans as food for humans. Um, and that's really the, the one issue that I focus on. You know, it doesn't mean I think anything less of those other issues. It's just, to me, that's the one that really impacted on me in the first instance, and that's the one I think I can personally make change, change with other people. Um, it's not all about sacrifice. That's a really important one. So many people get themselves into so much problems um, because they think they have to give everything to their cause. Uh, you know, you have to maintain a lifestyle that you're happy with somehow. Um, the circle of support and maintaining friends is also important for people. Um, preferably, you should also try to have people who are a circle of friends and supportive of you who aren't necessarily involved in your activism circle. Really important because um, if you then have a falling out with 
you know, it, 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 it's like you're back. It's like you're back in the schoolyard, and it's kind of okay. So you're no longer my friend. So all those people aren't my friend either. Um, and when that happens, and it does happen, um, I've seen grown adults have these, yeah, childish situations like you used to have in the schoolyard, and you just think, really, what's it about, you know? Um, and <coughs> and they're usually about the most ridiculous things. I talked about not having to be an expert about everything and um, finding positives in every experience is really important. Now, um, as I said before, we do have a nature to kind of dwell on the negatives um, and it's, it's a huge problem in, in all movements. Um, something goes wrong or you have a rally and you don't get media for it or... Um, you know, you've got this huge petition and you think you're going to make a change and the politicians don't listen to you. Um, people will dwell on those bad things without realising, <coughs> you know what, that petition hasn't made any headway, but yet it's the biggest petition that was ever presented to the Australian Parliament. And, you know, people are going to start taking notice because it's not just, you know, half a dozen inner-city trendies who are worried about this issue, you know. We got 350,000 signatures on that petition. No. Those kind of things. So you can find positives in, in all the negatives as well. And it's really important to remember. One of the um, ideas that people suggest is <clears throat> you keep a, um, a diary of all your little successes. And when I say little successes, I'm not demeaning anything. I'm just saying every little thing that you achieve, you write a letter and it gets published in the newspaper. You attend a rally. You put something out on social media and it, it gets the biggest reaction to anything you've ever posted on Facebook. Those little things are the things you want to remember so that in those periods where you're feeling really shitty about everything, you can go back and think, I've got text messages on my phone from things when I've done and people have just texted me. And some of those, and this sounds like I'm a bit of a... I've got a bit of an eager... Um, some of those text messages I've actually typed out and I've put in my diary. Uh, you know, so um, because they're the things that when I'm feeling complete, yeah, it keeps you going, and you just think, you know what, that was that was a really lovely thing that they said to me about that. And then when you meet people, and as I do because I've been around for a while, you meet people years later, and oh, that's Mary who wrote that lovely email to me after. Um, she saw me at the Cruelty Free Festival. Or, I don't think it's yeah. an ego thing. I um, just think it's like something to keep you going. Yeah, but, see, I, I say an ego thing because that's what people think, oh, I can't do that, you know, yeah. that's not me. But it's really important for us to do that. It's, it's, it's that kind of, you know, what, what is it, um, you know, the greatest love of all is learning to love yourself. You know, it's that kind of um, thing that we need to start adopting. Yeah. And, and we, all have to, we all have to remember these kind of things because there are going to be times when we're going to feel low and we need to kind of get some momentum. Taking regular breaks from activism is also something that should be encouraged by everyone. Now, I mentioned Mark Hawthorne earlier. I don't know if anyone's seen this before, the active approach. He, he went for it this He did. Okay, cool. I was, I was hoping he would because I'm running out of time. Um, so the active approach is just something that he um, developed in his book, Striking at the Roots, which I think came out about five, five six years ago. I'll just quickly go through it. So um, allowing yourself to be human, which, you know, we're, we're talking about, you know, giving permission to fail and realising that you can't win every battle. Um, creating the file, the scrapbook of all those memories, all those little messages that we get that we've already talked about. Talking to other activists that you respect 
and also sharing those feelings. Uh, you know, like if you are feeling down, do that. Ignoring graphic sights and sounds. Now, this is a big one for me. I don't post anything on uh, my Facebook page that's really graphic. Um, I just don't. I think the most graphic photo I've ever posted on the Poultry Place Facebook page was a photo of the geese being um, fed the plucked for the down, because, uh, you know, how else do you talk about that? But I just won't go with the graphic stuff. Um, I, think, I think people don't... People won't look at stuff, and you want people to engage with stuff. And also, it traumatises yourself. Um, visit an animal sanctuary, that's a big one. Um, and I, I strongly encourage as many people as possible to come visit a poultry place. Um, thankfully, nowadays, um, there's animal sanctuaries popping up everywhere. Um, when I started a poultry place, uh, apart from the place I'd been living at with the guys before, uh, there were no other animal sanctuaries that focused on what people call farm animals that I knew of in Australia. Um, nowadays, there's uh, farm sanctuaries across the country, which is fantastic, because it also means there's hundreds more animals that have been saved over that course of time as well. Um, exercise regularly is another one. Now, um, you know, exercise doesn't mean you have to run a marathon. It just means you're going for a walk, getting out in the fresh air, you know, without the mobile phone to check your Facebook pages or, you know, whatever else, just getting away from all that technology as well. Um, a couple of things I just wanted to touch um, base on. Um, if anyone's in a group and you have meetings, one thing that my colleagues and I have started to do is at the start of our weekly meetings, we talk. We, we have a section at the start of the meeting um, about what Jesus is off. So, you know, you might come into a meeting where you're feeling really shitty. Now, it might be because your computer's not working or... The government's just announced that they're extending you know, the deal to put refugees into Cambodia or whatever. Um, so we, we have that five minutes in the start of the meetings where we just kind of get that off our chests. And we finish our meetings by talking about a win that we've had recently, a challenge, and something we're looking forward to. And I have found, since we've implemented those changes in the way we have our meetings... Everyone comes into the meetings, and by the time you start the meeting, you've got all that negativity out of the way, and we finish our meetings looking forward to something positive. And so if you're in a group of people and you kind of feel sometimes you get locked down into that kind of nitty-gritty stuff, try, try that and see how it works for you guys. Because it really, it's just one of those simple, simple things that you can do. You're listening to Freedom of Species on 3CR Community Radio. These are a series of three talks from last year's Animal Activists Forum. This year's forum will be held in October in Melbourne, and you can buy tickets now at activistsforum.com. We're going to the second of the talks. This is from Greens Federal Senator Lee Rhiannon. My name's Lee Rhiannon. I'm a Greens uh, Senator in the Federal Parliament and the animal welfare spokesperson for the Greens um, at a federal level. We also have animal welfare spokespersons at a state level. So I really appreciate the opportunity to be with you today. Um, I've come to um, the activist forum on other occasions and think it's really quite amazing how 
um, activists from around the country uh, come together to explore ideas and share information. And in many ways, I think that answers the question that may have brought you here today. Like, what's the point? People often say to me, what's the point of lobbying MPs having anything to do because, you know, the whole setup really drags the chain. You've been talking about banning live exports, talking about doing things, but where's the progress? Like, why do we, why should we even bother? Um, so I did want to explore that. And if anybody wants to ask a question as we go along, quite happy for you to interrupt me. But, you know, let's go back to it's called an activist forum. If you look at how society has developed um, with regard to uh, people's rights, the environment, um, animal rights, um, industrial relations, if you see that, and I do believe society has progressed, uh, you see that it comes from a diversity of actions. And what's absolutely critical is activism, is activists outside parliament. You know, I was an activist long before I went into parliament. I do actually enjoy the job. But being there convinces me every day that what is most important in achieving social change is people like yourselves literally rattling the chains. I can't emphasise how I can't emphasise how important that is, uh, and that, that so that in many ways is a short answer to like what's the point of engaging with MPs considering so little has changed. So there are some things that we do need to change the law on. And some of the big standouts is obviously ending live exports. We do need to get the law changed there. Although even having said that, um, if you look at the figures, um, a bit before Barnaby Joyce came in, because Barnaby Joyce, the new minister, is really out there to increase the numbers, really pushing Middle Eastern countries to take more exports. But the numbers have been dropping away because the farmers are making more out of chilled box meat being exported. So... Yes, we need to have the law change, but there's often other factors that change it as well. But the main thing is, is for, in this case, about the welfare of animals and is what we're dealing with today. And having that powerful public voice puts the politicians under pressure, gets the issue into the media, um, really pushes the public to be also aware of it in terms of their own habits and what they do. Uh, and again, I do think we need to push our politicians because there are so many cases, again, where you need the law to change. But if you look at the sweep of history, those legal changes really come at the end of the process. Like why I'm standing... If I was born 100 years ago, I come from a poor working class family. If I'd been born 100 years ago, I wouldn't be here as a politician. I would have been a domestic or something, you know. That's what life would have been. But because... Our forebears, as I said, rattled the chains, got out there, protested, did some amazing things. Women had the right to vote. Women can stand in elections. So therefore, I happened to be here because I was born when I was. Um, but it's an, and then what happens is that the politicians caught up with the women and in term time, the men who supported them for those legal changes. But those law changes so long often come after the process. So I wouldn't know, I'd urge you... It's not about sort of writing um, lobbying off, lobbying MPs off because, well, they don't get their act together and they don't do it. That's still part of what you do, what we do as activists, but it's, it rarely comes first. So I think it's also worth probably, and I'll use the live export two examples, live exports uh, and um, the cosmetics, testing um, cosmetics on animals. as two examples of where we're doing work in Parliament but working closely with the community and how important community action is. 
So with the live exports, the Greens have had a long policy of the um, ban on the live export trade. And as many of you would know, it was one of those issues that animal uh, rights people spoke about, but wasn't really in the public domain until we had the really important um, 20, 20, I think it was May 2011, when the ABC ran the program about what the, um, the, the terrible cruelty to the animals. And that put that centre stage. Well, then we had a bill in Parliament to ban live exports, something that's been talked about, suddenly people are taking more interest in it, etc. So where, how I see par Parliament is very useful, both in terms of, um, of, of helping um, sort of give, amplify the community voice around issues within Parliament and beyond. There's also the issue of resources. You can also demonstrate how you can do it. So with the live export trade, yes, we haven't changed the law yet, but we have legislation that shows how it can be done. So there's one way of the legislation. There's other ways that you can set up committees. You can have the inquiry where you go around the country, you take evidence. And again, that sometimes it's in the headlines. Sometimes it's more an awareness, a public awareness. It's starting to penetrate out into the community. That as we know, in building a campaign, developing an awareness within the community is incredibly important. And again, if you've got politicians who are sympathetic, who also are using their position, their voice, to amplify this message, it can complement what activists are doing. So, you know, I, I wish I had better news with regard to the issue of end live exports. And I do feel that we've gone backwards since the coalition government have come in. I mean, Labor were annoying, in the, being frank about it, the way they used ESCAS, um, you know, the so-called regulatory system, which was really, to my mind, uh, uh, so, that, so just for those of you who don't know, after <coughs> so much of the crimes against the animals are revealed, uh, Labor come up with a, a regulatory system um, in terms of what they say will manage the um, export of the animals and how they're killed overseas. Well, how are you going to control animal welfare issues from behind a desk in Canberra um, uh, uh, in terms of animal cruelty overseas um, was something that they could never answer. And that's why I say it was really a public relations exercise. So when the, another scandal broke, we always know that there will be another scandal when it comes to live exports. Labor, the Minister of the Department, would have, oh, yes, we've got a regulatory framework and we're being very thorough about this and they, they were standing here now. That's what they would be saying. But it's all that, that's obviously a con job. The issue is to end it. Now, I said I feel it's gone backwards since even that SCAS was very bad, is now Barnaby Joyce is out there going around to Middle Eastern countries really pushing to increase the exports. Um, so, you know, I acknowledge that's a setback and that sometimes happens in campaigns. Um, people then ask me, well, how are we going to get the breakthrough? How are we going to get, get the ban in place? Because at the end of the day, um, something has to change and I... You know, maybe legislation it won't need legislation. Maybe the farmers will just recognise that that doesn't work for them, as many of them are changing because for some farmers it isn't so profitable. But legislation, to my mind, should should occur, even if we had the best case scenario and they all did that. You would want legislative change to lock it in so we didn't go backwards at some stage, which often happens. But I just want to try and there paint a picture that how we can use Parliament. Um, uh, there's free, you know, we've been able to get debates up in Parliament. 
have the inquiry, have the legislation, etc. It helps demonstrate what should be done, helps amplify the fantastic work that so many activists are doing. So I think, um, again, I, I, to emphasise for those who have just come in, I've said that I don't think the be-all and end-all is lobbying MPs. I understand why people say, well, what's the point? What do you achieve? What I'm trying to say is that we need to see how um, our work can complement each other. And to my mind, you know, we want MPs on these issues who are also activist MPs. Around the cosmetics one, uh, to just move on to that. So uh, for a long time, um, many of us have worked for a ban on um, uh, the testing of cosmetics and the ingredients that make up the cosmetics um, on animals. So after the, in the last um, federal election, Labor actually advocated that they supported that, that very position that there should be um, no there should be no import of cosmetics um, and the ingredients of cosmetics from overseas that have been tested on animals. At the moment, and I've been told um, by people who work from animal rights groups and from the industry that there's none of the testing done in Australia. I must admit, lately I've got a little bit worried about that because of the way the industry goes on. But we'll stick with the issue of the campaign around the imports. And this also illustrates the tactics of how one approaches campaigning. Like we're in Parliament, you, you know, you're working full-time, you're looking at how you can be effective. So Labor's had this position, you know, good position, um, in, um, to ban the cosmetics and the cosmetic ingredients being imported into Australia. So we think we'll develop a private member's bill that will do exactly that. We take advice from lots of groups, we talk to lots of people, we bring forward the legislation. Sadly, politics... Parliamentary politics can get a bit annoying at times. Labor will not support the bill because we've moved it. So then, you know, we say to Labor, will you move it? We can move it together, etc. So at the moment, they went off and did a consultation. Probably some of you probably um, responded to their consultation. That's all good. However, and I've got to say a big however, a lot of that in this day is about collecting data. Like the consultation, to my mind, we don't really need a consultation on this. We know we have to get the ban in place. We should have just moved to do it. But, you know, different people manoeuvre in different ways. Um, so then we couldn't get Labor. So then one of the Liberal Party senators ha happens to come and see me and says, I'm also really concerned about this. I think we should be able to work together on it. So we're now talking to the Liberals as well as trying to talk to Labor because, to my mind, this really should be a no-brainer. It really, in terms of all the things that we need to do for animal welfare... This issue, like it's very small part of the equation. To say again, it's just a ban on the cosmetics on the, and the ingredients imported into Australia. Still really worthwhile, really good package, really important. And that's why we thought we should be able to get agreement about among that. But I'll be frank with you, we haven't yet. But again, we've been able to, um, we're trying to get the inquiry up. We've been able to get a lot more publicity around the issue. Um, many people have been surprised that the ban on the imports isn't, even in, isn't already in place. So having MPs, I think, again, it's um, using the tools that we have available to help amplify the very fantastic work that many community groups are doing. So that's sort of two examples. Just other things that we do. I just recently made a speech in Parliament about circuses and about how no circuses should have animals. My colleague in State Parliament, Maureen Faruqi, who has the animal welfare portfolio at a state level, she's running a campaign on it. I spoke on it federally. So many people say, oh, well, no big deal. But it's just like 
I just see all of this a little chunks, like we're a speck in the universe, you do your little bit, and what, you, what to my mind you see with political change, whether it's be for the animals, for the environment, for people on the job, whatever it would be, you really never know where you'll get the breakthrough. You do your bit, you raise your voice, you try and work with each other in the most constructive way possible, using the tools at hand. For politicians, there's various things that we can do. So that's just a couple of examples. For the Greens, it's a, a very important part of our work that we're constantly looking for more people we can cooperate with and how we can develop it. So in our remaining time, I'll be really interested in your questions and developing a dialogue on your ideas, criticisms, ideas, whatever you want to, wherever you want to take it. Yeah, no, good question. So the question was, as where um, the climate change issue is so urgent and when you look at um, the production of um, meat, the intensity of the water use, greenhouse gas emissions is huge and, and, dairy. Is, and, da and dairy, thanks, and growing. Um, so good question. Look, can I say that I could actually, you know, the Greens isn't perfect and that's one example of that. And I still think it's the best political party on the block in terms of the policies across the board, but there's things like that where... Um, you know, our colleagues haven't been willing to go to, being frank about it. Uh, we have um, an animal welfare working group within the Greens, which um, is raising, like, even issues when we do our catering internally. We've just about got it to all vegetarian and all and getting to vegan, but not completely. There are people who are resistant to that. So it's a debate internally. So I'm pleased that you've raised it. I go back and say I was questioned about this and we need to think about it more. But it's where I'm... All I can be is frank and say I think it's where we're weak. You're listening to 3CR. This is Freedom of Species. And today we have talks from last year's Animal Activist Forum. That was Green Senator Lee Rhiannon. And coming up next, Daniel Beecher and David Ristrom. So we realise how boring uh, talking about law can be. And... Um... <laughs> and preparing for uh, engagements with police uh, is, you know, pretty boring too. What we're hoping to talk about is the reasons why it's not a bad idea anyway. We were planning on doing a two-man freestyle rap today, but um, uh, I forgot the vinyl, so... Uh, David Ristrom's a barrister that I work with regularly in animal, uh, animal protection cases. Uh, we work for a number of groups uh, that care about animals, in Victoria, like in a lot of Australia, it's uh, becoming increasingly illegal to be nice to animals and um, we do our best to help people who are fighting against that. Uh, so today, as well as talking about what, what's, what ch challenges those activists face, we'll also be talking about what you can do to protect yourself, to uh, maximise the potential for someone like David or myself or us working together to get a good outcome for you if you find that you're on the wrong end of the law. And I'll say that to somewhat humble, apparently, Daniel Beecher, who hasn't <laughs> mentioned his own name, who's got a law firm down in Victoria. So um, we all assert the rights and freedoms, and you, we've all been probably challenged by a copper at some stage or another, or, or a business owner or whatever, that you can't do what you're doing. Uh, Oh, sorry, this will jump forward a bit for me. So I like to think about rights and responsibilities because if you, one of the big things I think is that's going to get you a lot further with the law is engaging some empathy. So thinking what it's like to be a, a beef producer who's probably got a big mortgage 
and doesn't like you, or a chook producer who really doesn't like you. You can get mixed up thinking they don't like you because of the issue, but they don't like you because you're probably going to affect their mortgage. So I just think of rights and responsibilities. I also like you to think about why you protest, because I can't work out the answer to that. It's your own answer, really. And I also, as part of that, like you to think about why police police. Because lots of, um, I don't know how many engagements I've been involved in, some where police have, you know, been really violent, uh, they're not as purposeful necessarily as you attribute them to be. They might just not like you. They might not like being there. They might not like what you're doing. But they just have a, they have a job. They're sworn. They're required to do that. Council officers are the same. They're not always the brightest light in the room. And they have a function to do. A police can be the same. We're, you know, Lots of us have varying capacities. So it's good to just describe, not ascribe reasons to them because it helps you navigate through it. I would have had, I don't know, maybe a hundred involvements with police where they could have arrested me over my life and I haven't been arrested. So I think you can often navigate through things. Anyway, that's the point. I do make the point that everyone's bound by the law and you're entitled to break the law. But if you're going to break the law, uh, I wouldn't expect it to be an absolute surprise that on one occasion, and it's not that often, you know, my guess, not based on any evidence, one time in a hundred, I think, people, it's probably more, we break the law so often, not just as activists, but in crossing road doing all that, and we get caught up as if someone's trying to get us every time. The truth is we do fairly well, and we usually don't get pinched. And so it's good to put it in perspective when you do get pinched that you've been very lucky, not to say you give up, and that's we're not about saying that. Um, so I say that everyone is entitled to break the law. We say that everyone is entitled to break the law and potentially face the consequences of being enforced, but it usually isn't. And I've had police, oh, look, unrelated things. I got stopped doing traffic stuff, and the guy ended up giving me vouchers to go out to food places because I had been involved in a court case with him with some big crook and... He thought I was decent in court and then he said, oh, you're not so bad and off you go and blah, blah. So things can come out differently. Daniel, do you want to... No? Okay. We talk about the law. Aboriginal people had their own arrangements. We came here and took over. States existed to start with and there wasn't anything called a Commonwealth. Commonwealth developed in 1901. So what you find is that there are states and state parliaments that make law. There are a couple of territories which are like states but there's also a Commonwealth. And so you have two filing cabinets, one with your Victorian or New South Wales and Queensland law or whatever, one with your Commonwealth law. And it gets very confusing because they don't automatically all apply or don't apply and they interact. When the state said they were prepared to have the Commonwealth, they said, we'll deal these things. You can print the money, you can run the defence, you can do this and that but they made a list of things that allow the states to do. It's become woollier over time, but it's a little bit confusing. So you also have local governments that make laws. So when I'm standing in this spot, I might be subject to the City of Sydney Council's bylaws. I'd be subject to the New South Wales State Parliament laws, and there'd also be Commonwealth laws that probably cover what I do. So it, it gets a bit confusing. There's also a thing called international law, which is really... Um, the idea is that if you've got a court in Australia, you can enforce it. 
It's harder when you haven't got an international court. They've developed them over the last 50 years, mainly after what happened in World War II. It's very slow, but generally what it means is if Australia says we're not going to be nasty to children who are refugees, they agree to sign up to that and they generally write laws in Australia, usually as Commonwealth law, to say we will follow the international law. So you can be bound by international law. We did a case for duck, uh, coalition against duck shooting people. We were trying to get the Ramsar Convention on wetland birds invoked. And that's because there was domestic law which said we'll take notice of the Ramsar Convention. Most of the law... So don't get panicked by that. It sounds complicated. Most of the law that you'll get involved with is state law. It's usually state police. Sometimes it's council police. And there are differences between different states and different Commonwealth laws. I mean, it makes your head hurt. It really does. Don't worry about it too much. Find out the generalities or, or if you're pushing the envelope the specifics that apply to you. And remember, if someone from Victoria says this is how it works, if you're from Queensland, that it may be different. And make sure someone locally gives you that advice. Uh, that's the summation at the end. We talk about rules generally that apply across Australia, but there are some things that both might vary. And also, on Monday, the New South Wales Parliament, if it's sitting, might make a new law, and the law can change. So you can never be absolutely confident when you say that's the law. One of the favourite things I like to think of people doing when they're preparing for an act where you may get arrested or you may come into contact with police is to prepare the support people who are going to record what's happening and be able to provide evidence that's supportive to you. Quite often you find activists have put themselves in a position where they arrested, there'll be a number of police that are witnesses, and they'll be the one person in the room that's saying what they swear is the truth. There'll be many people who say otherwise, and quite often magistrates or judges will support the, the police who they uh, believe are, uh, they're entitled to presume the police are doing their job, and part of that is telling the truth. Uh, one way that you can protect yourself and try and do the best to ensure that the police can be held accountable for their own requirement to be law-abiding uh, is to ensure that your actions are properly recorded at the time. Uh, of course, that can work against you. It's something that um, you need to consider before taking an action. Generating evidence against yourself might be something that you consider against doing as well. Certainly at the time that you come into contact with police it may well be too late to take preparatory measures. So for example I've had a number of clients who have had their mobile phones taken from them. These days your mobile phone will have all sorts of information that perhaps an activist wouldn't like the police to have. Police will take mobile phones, computers and other electronic devices if they have a reasonable belief that that can be used to provide evidence <coughs> as to an offence. Then that puts you in a position where you've got to go to, before a magistrate try and get your, get your documents or your, your devices back and in the meantime the police have access to your information perhaps. So knowing what you've got on you and thinking about that before the police take it is probably sounds like a um, common sense type thing but over and over again it's so easy to overlook. Knowing the right questions to ask police and to not provide the police with more information than, than they need to have is something that can be very helpful, not only to you at the time, but to your defence team afterwards. And so something that you'll hear us repeating throughout this seminar will be about your right to remain silent. And the benefit of asking police for their details 
generally have the right, if police stop you and they ask you for your name and address, uh, if they have reason to believe that you're um, commissioning an offence or that you have commissioned an offence or that you intend to commission an offence, then uh, they can ask you for your name and address. And, and it, it's generally an offence if you don't uh, provide those details. But at that time, you're also generally entitled to be asking the police for information. What's your name? What's your rank? Which office do you work from? Which police station? And it can become an offence if the police don't provide that information to you, and that's another uh, instance where having, having a recording device or having someone who's independently recording your encounter with the police can come in handy. This is the idea that you've got someone else that's not in the heat of it who sees whether the copper thumps you and independently says, yeah, they thumped you. I remember I was involved in a demonstration where a policeman panicked and turned around and put what's called a death hold on me which is absolutely illegal and it can kill you really quickly. So people independently came in really quickly who were activist support and they had taken notes and they could say that's what's happened. I bet what you get confused with is if you ever do get to court, you presume that what is discussed is the absolute truth. But I'm sure, to be fair to everyone... If I asked you to describe what we said at the beginning of the session, we'd have different versions of what was said. So even decent police and decent other people who give their version of events tend to see it in a way that reinforces what they believe. And they're probably not likely to say, yes, I apologise for making a mistake that ends my career. You know, they're not likely to say that. They may. It's a good point. If, if you find yourself in a position where you can't come to a meeting of minds with the police as far as what your rights are and, they, and they're at a point where they're about to use force to assert what they intend to do, at, at least you've put it on the record that they're getting their way by force, not by consent. That's the point where you don't get your arm broken, presumably, to, to give them the Opal card, but they can take it and then leave it to someone like us to argue about whether or not they actually had the right. There's, you're generally able to waive your rights, and so uh, by not taking that approach, by just handing it over, uh, you potentially limit uh, your opportunity to have a defence. You're listening to Freedom of Species on 3CR Community Radio. And those were three talks from last year's Animal Activist Forum, which was held in Sydney. This year's forum will be held in Melbourne, second weekend of October. Book tickets at activistforum.com. That wraps up today's show, and we'll go out with some Hawkwind. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.